Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Pharmacast, the official podcast from the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Dr. Dan Corbett. I'm a senior lecturer in digital education here at the school. And this is the next in the series of research podcasts where we discuss lots of the world leading um, and impactful research that we have taken place here at the School of Pharmacy at Queen's. The pleasure of being joined by two of our very eminent researchers um, in primary care uh, here at the school today, um, namely with Professor Carmel Hughes, who is a professor of primary care pharmacy at the school and Dr Heather Barry who is a lecturer in pharmacy practice here at the school also so welcome to both of you. Um, I thought we'd just get started straight into things essentially just to talk a little bit about an overview of your research interests and then we'll lead into some questions off the back of that and some things that I've been thinking about um, having had a look at, at some of your research and from previous conversations that we've had so Carmel maybe if I could start with you just in terms of going through a little bit of a, a general overview of the research that you do at the school. Thanks Dan. Um so I suppose as a pharmacist, I'm interested in medicines and um, unsurprisingly, perhaps. And I've had a long-standing interest in the use of medicines in older people, partly because all of us are going to get old and most of us are probably going to be on medicines. So we want to make sure that those medicines are right for us and that we're able to take them and that we're going to get the outcomes that we would hope from taking those medicines. Um, and I suppose as well, everybody is conscious of the fact that we're living in a really aging population at the minute and in many ways that's something to celebrate because it does represent the advances in in medical science and, and medical care but along with those positives we also need to be aware of the challenges that that brings to using medicines in this particular population recognizing that uh, Older people will face a number of different challenges, be they physical or be they cognitive, to do with the, the ability of, of them to to think and, and to manage medicines on a day-to-day -day basis. So a lot of the work that I have done has really been around looking at the use of medicines in older people, um, particularly from the point of view of how pharmacists can help older people um, manage their medicines and also how pharmacists can help in the context of a wider healthcare team. So not necessarily about pharmacists doing it on their own, but pharmacists doing it with other people. And that's the way I think healthcare is going. Um, so a lot of my work tends to be focused in primary care. And the way I would think about that would either be in the context of general practice or um, within community pharmacy. Um, I don't do very much uh, research within hospital practice. Um, if I do do any, it's really at that interface between what happens in hospital going out into, into primary care. And um, as I said, you know, most of my work has re really been around the pharmacist's contribution, either uh, in terms of what they can do or what they can do within a, a team context, in terms of improving medicines use. Um, and we might have an opportunity later on in this podcast, Anne, to talk about the ways in which we do it. Mm -hmm. But um, I suppose that gives a very, very broad overview of the, the area that I'm, I'm interested in. Great stuff. Thank you, Carmel. Heather, what about yourself? Um, so I guess my interests are fairly similar to Carmel's in that regard. Um, I've worked with Carmel for a number of years now. She was my PhD supervisor, and I guess that's where a lot of my interests kind of stemmed from. So again, very interested in... Um, older people and their use of medicines I suppose over the years I've been particularly interested in um, people living with dementia um, and older people um, who are maybe living with frailty as well and how um, 
we can really try and rationalise prescribing for those patient groups and try and optimise how they manage their medicines. Again, similar to Carmel, I would tend to focus on the primary care setting. Um, so thinking about those different healthcare professionals within that, general practitioners, community pharmacists, we also have pharmacists now in general practices, and really how all of those healthcare professionals together, I guess, can deliver services in a in a optimised way to these patient populations. Great stuff. Thanks to both of you for that. So one thing that you both mentioned has been primary care. And I guess mm. for the interests of a sort of more wider audience that we have, um, it would be useful maybe to talk a little bit about what primary care is, this, the sort of settings within primary care that you're interested in based around those patient sets that you, you maybe mentioned there a few minutes ago. Um, and maybe a little bit by extension, I'm conscious there are a number of questions within this question, what the challenges are within those particular settings out there in primary care as well? So there are lots of, you know, quite lengthy academic definitions out there around <laughs> primary care. Um, and it talks about comprehensive, coordinated care. Mm -hmm. But one of the key aspects about primary care is the first point of contact for a patient. Yeah. And I guess historically that was always seen as the GP, the general practitioner. He or she would have been your first point of contact. You would have gone to the GP. And then if you needed further treatment, that GP would have referred you onward. So that represented that first point of contact. So very often, I think, again, in the past, primary care was seen really as the domain of general practice but I think that definition has expanded now and increasingly there are other disciplines and other um, uh, areas of, of healthcare that would also be seen as a first point of contact yeah. and increasingly I think community pharmacy is seen as a first point of contact in the community and that's I guess where the, the name comes from sure. uh, where again a patient would go to a community pharmacist to get advice or to um, help manage some symptoms Again, even within general practice, a first point of contact could be a practice nurse yeah. or it could be a dietitian or it could be a physiotherapist. So it's about that first point of contact, I guess, within a community setting mm -hmm. and is, is distinct from what would be thought of as hospital care. And hospital care is often thought of as secondary care yeah. because you're referred on from primary care as being the first point of contact sure. to more specialised care within hospital. And that's the way that we, we would normally define primary care as being community pharmacy, general practice and the, the disciplines and practitioners who work within that, um, I guess, sphere of, of practice. I suppose when we think about patients in a primary care setting, and I suppose a lot of our work in the past is focused on people who are living in their own homes, mm -hmm. therefore, and who are accessing those services. So we talk about community dwelling patients. And I suppose you, Carmel, as well, have done a lot of work within the care home setting, which again would access a lot of those primary care services as opposed to inpatients and hospitals sure and then so i mean but maybe a bit of reference to those patient sets that you mentioned earlier on around older people and around those but maybe living with dementia as well the primary care setting and things like community pharmacy and nursing homes what sort of challenges do they, they then kind of raise you know in terms of your research what are the challenges that you're really trying to work on and, and help to solve in, the, in those contexts well i suppose you could you could tackle that in two different ways in that you've got the challenges that arise from those people um, who very often may be taking many medicines, so therefore that presents a challenge for them. Yeah. And you want to make sure that they're getting the right medicines at the right time, and as I said in the introduction, that they're getting the outcomes that they um, 
that, that they would, would want in order to try and improve their, their health condition. So that's, I suppose, the big overarching challenge. But then there's the actual challenge itself of doing the research mm-hmm. in the setting of primary care, be that in general practice or somebody living in their own home or, or community pharmacy. So that's another set of challenges. If I maybe go back to the, the first challenge about the issue to do with, with medicines, um, in, in older people and the fact that we know that most older people will be on many medicines. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that has been described as, as polypharmacy. But we also need to recognise as well that with people living older and living with a number of different medical conditions, the requirement is that they will probably need more than three medicines yeah. at, at any one time in yeah. order to manage their diabetes and their heart heart condition and maybe they have arthritis as well so you could be talking about three to four medicines to begin with Mm. and that can be a challenge for older people um, in terms of how to take them and also making sure that the medicines that they get are not causing um, undue adverse effects so you you need to be looking at what is being prescribed and then how the person concerned is actually um, taking those those medicines and if they're taking them correctly and if a pharmacist in some way can um, help in terms in, of improving the prescribing and then also improving the way in which the patient takes those medicines and then also in monitoring how that treatment works out for that patient. So that would be you know, a, an approach that we would take with an, our, a number of different studies and, and again we can talk about some of those um, a, a bit later on but you know, that's kind of the, one of the big challenges that we would be looking at uh, currently within our, within our group you know, the many medicines that people are taking, um, whether or not they're getting the right medicines, how do they take them, can that be improved, and what difference is it making to the to the patient? And we would be looking at all of those stages uh, in a variety of different ways. Okay. Um, and, and Heather, you've mentioned when you were introducing your research more generally, you mentioned patients living with dementia mm-hmm. there as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that the challenges are similar there? Is the landscape a little bit different with those patients? There's obviously going to be some overlap with, I guess, what I would refer to as the general older population. So we're seeing a lot of those same things that Carmel has just described in terms of obviously people living much older, Mm -hmm. um, people having a number of long term conditions. And we know from the literature that people with dementia are living with a number of other things alongside um, dementia um, and therefore, you know, lots of of medicines potentially prescribed i suppose with that particular population there's sort of that added complexity around maybe difficulties or challenges they may face when actually trying to manage their medicines and maybe thinking about people in particular living alone who maybe don't have that support in place um in terms of um remembering to take their medicines and and how do they actually set up strategies to to try and help them do that there are as well issues with potentially prescribing um if if people with dementia can't maybe communicate as well and be part of that sort of shared decision making process with the prescriber um and very often we find that carers are more heavily involved with those particular populations um both at the prescribing stage and in terms of actually just Mm -hmm. day-to-day management of the medicines so so there are a few unique challenges definitely um but a lot of a lot of similar overlap too Okay, so we've got a, a pretty good 
landscape in terms of the research questions and the challenges that are there i think one thing maybe that a lot of people listening may not fully understand is is how you both do your research um i think if you kind of you know you go out and you mention research to somebody they maybe instantly go to somebody standing in the lab you know mm, playing mm-hmm, around stuff mm-hmm. and doing whatever there um your research is obviously very different in terms of how you do it and, and, and the data that comes out the other side and what ultimately happens with that so i'd be keen if if i could ask you both to maybe talk a little bit through about the methods that you use to do your research what's involved with that what some of the challenges are in terms of doing that research as well so again yes you're you're right in that we we don't do lab based research so we're not dealing with test tubes and machines (laughs) machines that go bing we don't have anything like we don't really have anything like that equally as exciting Mm -hmm. yes absolutely Absolutely. it's just it's just a different way of trying to to generate knowledge um and i suppose in in to some extent the community out there represents our laboratory yeah that's the area in which we are working um, and the methods that we use will really be dictated by what we're trying to find out. Mm-hmm. So within the research that we do, we spend time thinking about what is the research question? What is the question here or the problem that we're trying to, to solve? So I think you might have mentioned earlier on, Dan, about um, surveys and, and doing surveys. So that type of work will be driven by the fact that we may want to know opinions Mm -hmm. from a particular group of of individuals. So we may want to know what patients think about pharmacists becoming more involved in their care. And we would do that through a survey or a questionnaire. And I I guess most people are are maybe familiar with with that type of of approach where they may have been uh, asked to complete a survey in a supermarket or whatever. Well, it's more or less the same principle where we're developing questionnaire surveys to try and answer very specific questions, such as, for example, you know, what do you think about the service that would be provided by a community um, pharmacist? Sometimes we're interested in, uh, I suppose, a broader overview of people's views um, we already perhaps have some idea or in some cases we have very little idea about people's views on things and perhaps uh, doing a questionnaire would not necessarily um, provide us with the information that we would want um, and in those types of cases we would perhaps be carrying out interviews where we would sit down with somebody and just basically conduct an interview with them yeah. or sometimes it makes sense that we would interview more than one person at, at any one time and that would be known as a focus group. Other times as well, we're interested in looking at patterns and trends in, for example, the use of medicines. And there are a number of different um, sources of information that will allow us to look at those patterns and trends of, of medicines use. And that type of work would be known as um, epidemiological or observational studies where you're observing what's happening over a, a long period of time. Sure. Um, and we can apply to, to get access to, to that type of information. And then the other thing that we would do on occasion would be to carry out what are known as randomised control trials where we're, we've developed a new service or a, a new service is about to be put into practice, but we're really not sure whether or not it's going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. So the, the um, aim of a randomised control trial is to test usual care, what normally happens, against a new type of service. Mm. Um, and patients or people who take part in this trial will just be randomly assigned by chance to either get 
the usual service or the new service and we will follow those people for a period of time as they are getting the new service or we'll follow the people who are getting usual care yeah. for a certain period of time and then we will compare them at the end and that's called a randomised control trial and again we will do that uh, for a number of studies where we're interested in whether or not a new type of service will be better or perhaps worse or no, no different to usual care. Sure. Heather, I guess you would probably use fairly similar approaches in the work yeah, that you're doing. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say that Carmel and I would both describe ourselves as mixed methods um, researchers in, in terms of our approach to um, to utilising different methods. So, you know, we'll, we'll maybe use a, a combination of those methods in a particular um, you know, over the course of a particular project. Yeah, gotcha. And then, Carmel, that's a really interesting point in terms of saying that the population out there is essentially your laboratory and that's kind of where you do your, your experimentation, for, for want of a better expression. Those randomised controlled trials, so obviously where there is a, a pre-existing method that's used to, to look after patients in a particular way and, and you have a, a, a different intervention that may offer some benefit, is that a, how, how is that governed? How is that managed? If you want to go out and do something like that, there's obviously additional considerations because you are essentially experimenting on a particular part of the population. Could you talk us through a little bit of the sort of an overview of how that's done in terms of governance and making sure that everyone's kept safe, I guess, in that? Well, it's a really good question, Dan, and, and in fact, it's something that we need to think about for all types of research, mm. not just the randomised control okay. trial, but if you're going to, to do any kind of research you need to get ethical approval. Yeah. Um, and what ethical approval is really about is ensuring the safety and protection of anybody who takes part in research and sure. um, that they're not going to be exposed to anything that um, is going to cause harm. And although on the face of it, um, somebody completing a questionnaire would seem very inobtrusive and very um, harmless, mm -hmm. we still need to seek approval to do that type of study because there could be questions that would be asked that might prove to be upsetting to a person yeah. as they were yeah. completing a, a questionnaire. So irrespective of the kind of research that we do, we have to seek ethical approval, um, which requires writing a very detailed method of exactly what it is that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And you need to provide a copy of, for example, a, a survey, okay. or you need to pr provide a very detailed overview of exactly what is going to happen to a person if sure. they're taking part in a trial. And we very often as well have to provide them with um, information sheets that is written in language that everybody would understand. So again, that a person who has been invited to take part in the study knows exactly what is going to happen to them. Yeah. And then the other piece of that ethical approval as well is ensuring that uh, informed consent is being um, provided by that individual so that again they understand what is going to happen in the study they agree to take part in the study and that they sign and they date a form which is a, a consent form um, and all of that material then is submitted to an ethical um, committee which will review it in detail and then will either approve or not as the case may be to allow the study to go ahead Okay, good stuff. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so very often our work, I guess, you know, before we even get out into the field and, and get to collect our data, you know, there'll often be a very, you know, a substantial period of time, I guess, devoted to planning the study, mm -hmm. working up study protocol, all of the necessary documentation, and then going through those different, um, whether it be ethical approval, maybe trust governance approval, if we're doing something within a trust area, um, or any other sort of local approvals that may be needed. Um, but 
obviously really worthwhile in terms of knowing exactly what you're doing and and we're doing things in the in the right and proper way the other thing as well I was going to mention you picked up on informed consent and obviously you know thinking again about working with people living with dementia Mm -hmm. there's an added consideration there obviously that ethics want to be assured that um you know we're, we're going through the right procedures mm-hmm. in order to do that and that people um with dementia have the capacity yeah the mental capacity to provide informed consent for taking part in research so so that can sometimes be just an added layer of of complexity in terms of how we think through how we're going to do that and the procedures that we're going to follow um in order to get that approval sure I guess one thing that tends to come up quite a lot, particularly now, given sort of an information age and everyone talking about big data and all this sort of thing as well, is the data that comes out the other side. These things too, what sort of considerations do you have? Because I guess you're, you're generating quite large amounts of data sets that you have to kind of go through and process. I guess that's part of that ethical uh, approval process as well in terms of how you handle that data. It'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about that and also just kind of how you you treat that data as well how that's kind of handled and managed to give you the sort of outcomes and and to give you an indicator of how things are working and and how you can actually measure outcomes from things like that so you're right these studies will all generate information or data Mm. which basically is is the output or the or the outcome from those those studies and and when we're writing our very detailed methods we need to say what we're going to collect in terms of information how we're going to collect it and what we're going to do with it in terms of, of analyzing it and then how we're going to store it and again, the Ethics Committee want to see all of that laid out in, in detail. They also will want to know who has access to that data. Yeah. So it's it's usually just um, will be available to people within the, the research team and those individuals need to be named. Mm-hmm. So again, the Ethics Committee will know that person A, B and C will have access to this information. Very often as well, we need to ensure that we're removing anything that would potentially identify anybody who's taking part in that research. And again, usually we're telling people that that uh, all of their identifiers will be removed and nobody would, would know yeah. that they've taken part in the study. Um, the Ethics Committee are also wa- wanting to be reassured that the data will be stored properly mm-hmm. um, and that it will be stored in such a way that again, we're, we're maintaining confidentiality that we're storing it securely so that nobody else can get get access to it. So we're, we're making use of all of the facilities within Queen's in relation to data storage and, and data security. Uh, and again, the, the Ethics Committee just want to be reassured um, about that. Sure. Heather, have I left anything out? I'm sure I have. I suppose in terms of the some of the big data sets that we're working with, I suppose there's an added, again, as it was an added layer of that sort of information governance in relation to, um, you know, and some of that will be on the part of, of the data controllers in terms sure. of the people who hold that data and yeah. how they release it to us. And, you know, there's special procedures in terms of how we can access that data, but um, you know that it's aggregated on such a level that again we can't inadvertently sure. disclose something about um, about people. I suppose that's the only added extra. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing that we would always indicate in our detailed methods is that we normally keep the data for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And sometimes that's important because something may arise in the future as a result of somebody having taken part in a study um, or something has arisen whereby there's the need to go back and look at that data again for whatever reason. Uh, And it gives you the opportunity to do that. But then after five years, um, you're making the commitment to destroy that data Mm -hmm. and it has to be done under certain conditions. And there are... um, again organizations that will destroy data uh, uh, in a very confidential manner Um, it's not as though you can just you know um, put it into a a a black bin a black bin bag and hope for the best it it has to be (laughs) done in a particular way Uh, again bearing in mind that that everything has to be confidential um, and that nobody else can have access to it and I think there have been certainly some you know well publicized cases in the past where that always hasn't happened Um, increasingly I think we're less reliant now on paper copies Mm. of of data collection forms many things now are being collected through various digital formats um so i suppose the the notion of finding data collection forms on top of a skip um hopefully are 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 lessening um but that's something that we're we're um very mindful of when it comes to to data collection yeah so yeah there's obviously a huge amount of consideration that goes into to making this work. And I think that maybe surprises, it would be fair to say, I think that surprises students maybe, whether it be at undergraduate level, if they're sort of planning out a project, mm. um, you know, their, their final year project with us, or, um, you know, maybe new PhD students, yeah. you know, in terms of all of that process we go through before, you know, I think they just sort of think it's as simple as getting out there and, you know, getting started. And very often, you know, mm there is this sort of protracted process of preparation and planning, which clearly pays dividends in the long run, but um, and which we just have to go through. But um, I don't think people always sort of appreciate um, just all the things we need to consider and why we're doing them. You know, I think sometimes people think, oh, we can just collect whatever data we want Mm -hmm. and we can we can decide what we do with it once we get it. And that's very much not the case. You know, we have to ensure that, you know, we're asking for the data that we need. It's hypothesis dri- driven in the first place. There's a there's a rationale for asking mm-hmm. for it and that we know kind of what we want to do with it before we even collect it. Yeah. And again, I think it surprises some students as well and maybe other people um, that, you know, once you say what you're going to do in a study and how you're going to do it, that's how you should be doing it. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't suddenly decide halfway through, well, I'm going to do something else. Mm-hmm. That's called protocol deviation, and that's really not allowed. Right. If you find halfway through a study that something has happened that you really hadn't accounted for um, or that you couldn't have anticipated halfway through at the beginning of the study when you were thinking about it, you can seek what is known as an amendment. You can go back to the ethics committee and say, listen, we're going to have to change this. But it means that you have to seek approval. You just can't unilaterally decide this is what I'm going to do. That just is not allowed to happen. Uh, And again, I think people are surprised at that level of adherence Mm. to the the methodology Mm. that was set out in the first instance. I think that's the thing. You know, it's it's always very interesting to me to, to speak to both of you about this because you know a, a questionnaire or a survey arrives, you look at it, you do it, and you don't really have a full appreciation for what's happened prior to that. Yeah, yeah. particularly <laughs> the amount of work that it's taken to get to the point where you can disseminate that questionnaire out to people who can actually give you some data back. And at that point, really, that's when the actual data collection starts. But there's a huge amount of work that goes to that point. You could put that work in and ethics could turn around and say, don't go ahead as well, I guess. Right. And they, they could kind of reject your, your, your protocol, which is probably not an ideal situation to ever be in. But then it's also, 
you know, from that point onwards, people are completing those questionnaires, they're speaking to you at interviews, and it generates data on the other side that is then kind of what drives the research and kind of gives you output. Uh, one thing, maybe it's um, just to change track a little bit, but if you're doing something like, say, those interviews with, with patients or with, with carers on a one-to-one -one basis or with wider groups of people, that obviously generates data, but it's data that people aren't necessarily kind of familiar with. People think data and think numbers, maybe, and, and stuff that maybe would be returned more on something like a survey or questionnaire. How do you handle that interview data that comes back? And what do you, what do, you do with that? How do you turn that into something that you can draw a conclusion from? So very often, um, you know, for example, if we're conducting interviews or focus groups with people, we um, will audio record them. Mm -hmm. um, and then once that researcher comes back into uh, their office, they will then transcribe that okay. recording. So very simple terms, they just type it out word for word. Sure. That's a very lengthy process as well. Yeah. We would generally estimate that um, about an hour of audio data might take six hours to transcribe. Okay. So, you know, as you can imagine, it would involve a lot of stopping, rewinding, yeah. <laughs> listening back. Um, now, in saying that, yes, it's it's lengthy, but um, really invaluable in terms of obviously that person has sat through, you know, and has conducted the interview themselves, so they've been there. But equally, by by transcribing, it's just adding to that process of what we would call familiarisation with the data. So they're really, really knowledgeable mm -hmm. about what has happened during that interview, as well as their own insights of what they saw and observed, and you know, any things that happened sure. during the interview, as well as as the actual audio data um, and then once um, that person has a, a transcript um, we'll go through a process of analysis with that and there are lots of different approaches to to analyzing um, that, that qualitative data as we call it so um, you know one very sort of more straightforward way is, is looking for themes so um, I suppose common common things that might occur within the data mm -hmm. that you're looking you know sort of across the interviews as well to see gosh are a lot of people starting to mention the same thing okay. here is this something yeah. that's common to some people or you know is there something diverging then from that mm -hmm. data as well and um, that that's not the experience of of everybody within the sample um, so there there are lots of different ways and I guess over the years we've we've employed lots of different approaches to to analysis but I guess in essence that's really trying to you know distill down quite quite a large quantity of data that mm. we have and, yeah, and very rich data generally yeah. from those sources and you're you know in essence trying to distill that down into um, something that I guess kind of summarizes and sums up the essence of what um, those participants are telling us sure. and that eventually will, will form the basis of what we present in um, you know a paper or whatever sure. report interesting yeah I mean it, it's, it's, it's I think people think data they think numbers and it, it is that bit of having to take that and kind of almost essentially theme it that way and kind of go and, and call those and general it's very iterative out. as well you know it you know Yes, the researcher, whether that be a, a postdoc or PhD student, might be you know involved in that sort of day-to-day um, -day analysis and, and working through that from the transcribing stage. But it involves a lot of discussions within the research team yeah. to really get to that final sure. point. And it, it does take time. It's it's not a, a quick process by no, any it means. It is it is very laborious, and sometimes you can't see the the wood for the trees. Mm, so yeah, very often you will have more than one person who's going to be involved in that to help. 
I suppose, navigate through all yeah. of that noise, but also to bring a degree of rigor to it as mm. well. So it's not just one person's point of view yeah. In, yeah. in terms of analysis. And Heather was talking about, you know, you're trying to distill down what the, the, the real key messages are. And we did a study about a year and a half ago looking at um, community pharmacy and how it coped during, during COVID. Mm. And um, uh, Susan Patterson, who was the, the research fellow who worked on it, interviewed um, community pharmacists and also a range of different stakeholders to get their views of how community pharmacy um, managed and, and worked over the, the course of, of the pandemic. And we did a, a questionnaire um, in the first instance that was um, answered by community pharmacists. And then we did interviews and I think in many ways the interview study was probably even more enlightening in many ways than than the questionnaire study and in the end we entitled the paper or at least this was part of the title they stood there front and center okay and this was about community pharmacists really stepping up to the mark during covid and what came through in in that study was their adaptability their flexibility their ability to just stand there front and centre because I think the view was that community pharmacy was really the key healthcare mm. sector that continued to provide care and services to people, particularly within um, within primary care. And I think that partic- and that that was a quote that, that somebody said during yeah. the course of the interview um, that they gave to Susan. And I think for us that really summarised what the essence of this paper was yeah. and what the essence of the data were that community pharmacists were highly committed uh, to patients, to the public, to th- to their own profession and their staff, and they stood there front and centre. I mean, that's probably quite timely because what a, you know, it's, it's interesting to know about the, the sort of research landscape and the question to the there. I think it's everyone hopefully now has a bit of an appreciation of how complicated it is to do the research that you do uh, in terms of going out there and getting data from people. What about the outcomes on the other side? So you've mentioned pharmacists, you've mentioned in the context of COVID, um, and I'll not ask you to kind of go into the outcomes of all of your research over the the course of a very two very eminent careers. But I, from a pharmacist perspective, if you were to kind of summarise what the pharmacist's role is in enhancing patient outcomes around things like polypharmacy, maybe Carmel, and around sort of dementia care as well, how would you summarise that in terms of what your research findings have have told you over the, the last number of years? I suppose at the end of the day, we're doing research in order to make a difference and and to see that impact. Um, And that's something that's important to us. But I think we also have to recognise as well that impact can take some time to be fully realised. And sometimes that's just because research takes a long time to do. But also sometimes um, it's not the right time for that message to be heard or there's not the political will to put a new service into in place. Yeah, there can really. be lots of lots of confounding factors that means that your research will not make an impact. Um, there was a study that I was involved in a number of years ago um, called the Fleetwood Project, mm-hmm. and that was about pharmacists going into to nursing homes and um, undertaking medication reviews and providing pharmaceutical care t- to residents. And it was run as a, as a randomised controlled trial in that some residents and homes got this um, new service mm-hmm. and in other homes just usual care continued. Sure. And that study did show a marked difference in terms of the the quality of prescribing that took place in homes where pharmacists were reviewing medication feeding back to GPs as opposed to usual care. And the other really critical part about that study was that it also showed that the new service was cost effective. 
And that's a powerful message for policymakers if you yeah. can show that it's effective, but also show that's a co- that it's cost effective. And that study, I think, did inform the direction of travel around pharmacists um, getting involved in care home services, mm. and I think has now been embedded much more so in um, in in Northern Ireland and indeed elsewhere. Um, we've also done work as well looking at um, pharmacy prescribing. We did some work very early on when pharmacists first became prescribers. Um, and I think some of that work, again, informed the policy agenda mm. in that in the early days, pharmacists were either supplementary prescribers or they very rigidly stuck to one particular clinical area. Mm. I think what our work showed was the importance of pharmacists extending within their competencies, managing not just one condition because a person isn't just one condition. Mm-hmm. They have a number yeah. of different conditions and, and that person needs, needs um, support holistically. And I think that is fed through into the way in which prescribing is now, I think, rolled out. Uh, in terms of both training and also implementation I- in practice. But, you know, I've been involved in lots of studies that in many cases didn't work, mm-hmm. where we couldn't get enough people to take part. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, again, I can think of one study that we did, again, going back to nursing homes, where we, um, it was at a time when there was real concern about MRSA and the problems associated with MRSA. And we did a trial whereby some homes were educated about infection control and other homes were not. And we assessed the difference uh, in terms of the extent of MRSA in those two groups of homes, and we showed absolutely no difference. No difference whatsoever. Having said that, I think the reason why we showed no difference was because the homes that were educated Mm -hmm. in this new way of, of handling infection control actually didn't do what they were asked to do. So I think very often you will find that your study may show no effect, but you also need to think about, well, why is that the case? Yeah. Is it because what we're doing is is genuinely ineffective mm. or it hasn't been done in the way that we intended yeah. it to be done? So there have you know, there's there's a trail of death and destruction out there in terms of research that we've all been involved with that hasn't worked for yeah. a number of different yeah, reasons. Yeah, uh, but I think it's equally important to try and figure out why things don't work. Uh, in order to inform the next study. Yeah, I, I guess that can maybe be the difficulty of working with people in these contexts. And to well. share that and disseminate that very often, you know, if things haven't worked or, you know, we've ended up as, as we have in some projects, maybe doing a systematic review and it's been empty, that still tells us something mm, about, you know, the current evidence base and it's important to try and, you know, hopefully if a journal is also <laughs> can see the value in, in publishing that. Uh, you know, it's important to, to share that with the the wider research community. I mean, Carmel picked up on, you know, one of those challenges is recruitment. Yeah. And that's certainly something that I would probably say in nearly every study <laughs> that I have been involved in um, since PhD days has always been a concern and always been a challenge. But again, you know, by, by discussing that within our outputs and, um, you know, sharing that with people, you know, we can learn from the evidence and hopefully people can learn from, you know, recruitment strategies that we find yep. to be helpful or maybe the way in which we've changed things if we've amended our approaches. Um, so it is all, it's part and parcel, I guess, of of the joy that is research and um, sharing that is really important. Sure. Uh, and I guess, the, the, so the ph- pharmacists are obviously one of the, the big sort of 
healthcare professional groups that you guys are interested in. Um, so some of the, the content that you've mentioned earlier on in terms of your research relates to how patients manage their conditions as well and, and, and how they can be empowered to look after their conditions a little bit more. Um, Heather, has there been anything that you find from a either a pharmacist and or a patient perspective around dementia and patients living with dementia that your research has brought about in terms of outcomes, in terms of how that can be more improved? Um, I think some of the work we've done with with patients with dementia has been challenging in terms of of what I've talked about previously mm-hmm. in terms of that recruitment and sometimes it's been difficult to really to kind of delve into that sure. in terms of what their experiences have been um, and I think that's something we're very aware of in terms of what's missing within the literature mm. that patient voice um, what I would say is that carers really help us in those situations in terms of um, telling us their experiences of managing medicines and, and how prescribing has taken place and what their encounters have been with healthcare professionals um, and so I guess that's a big take home message from some of the work that we've done in terms of the value of carers in that whole yeah. process um, and I suppose the other thing that we are very conscious of and probably we haven't mentioned up to this point is um, something called PPI, Patient and Public Involvement. Um, And that's really where it's sort of recognising that um, patients and the public really need to be involved from a very early stage, um, right back thinking to planning a research study, you know, at the stages where we're applying for funding and having them part of that whole process. So, um, you know, once the, the project would be underway in terms of advising us on, you know, those um, patient facing materials that are going out there and maybe any questionnaires or topic guides that we're developing and helping us to analyse the findings and importantly interpret the findings yeah. as well. Um, so I think that's something, again, we have found to be a challenge um, in terms of of getting willing participants to, mm. to help us with that. Yeah, and something imagine. I think going forward we're, we're really focusing on and have been sort of discussing between us and, and thinking about um, to try and and grow that, I guess, for the future. So that would be something as well that um, I think I'm much more attuned to going forward. Yeah, so it's just really interesting to hear about the tangible impact that these things have in terms of the outcome at the other side and, and what that means for pharmacists and for patients and their carers. One thing maybe just to, to wrap up as well, um, I, I'm kind of conscious that if we think about your research and wherever anyone is listening to this at home they place themselves in the, their locale where they are in terms of how this kind of impacts but I'm kind of also conscious that you guys do a lot of your work internationally and think about sort of wider sets than, than just at home do you find that there is differences in different places in terms of the outcomes that you find or things the same is it generally do people behave the same way regardless of where they are or are there other differences that you've noticed in terms of the outcomes and, and where they maybe sit I think the challenges, I think that the big research questions around an ageing population, an older population, are probably pl- pretty universal. Okay. You know, I think it, don't think it matters where you are in the world. Mm. I think populations are ageing, people are, are receiving much more health care, people are much more clinically complex than they would have been mm. in the past. Lots of more medical conditions to, to think about. And I think many researchers are, are tackling the same types of issues and problems within their own particular environment and setting. I think where some of the differences might lie could be due to context, whereby if you, for example, if we were to develop a service to roll out in community pharmacy in Northern Ireland, 
that probably has reasonable relevance to maybe the UK mm. by and large because it's a, a similar healthcare setting. Yeah. But if you move that to another country, you're putting it into what could potentially be a very different healthcare system. Mm. Say, for example, the USA, sure. that just is very different to the way we do things. Yeah, yeah. I think the expectation would be that that new service wouldn't necessarily work okay. because it doesn't really fit with the context in which healthcare is delivered in yeah. the States. And going back to the Fleetwood project that we did here in Northern Ireland in nursing homes, that project was originated in the States okay. for US nursing homes. And when I saw it as laid out, I knew in that in, in its original guise it wouldn't work okay. for us in Northern Ireland. So we before we did our, our trial, we had <coughs> had to do a, um, a preliminary piece of work whereby we adapted it okay. for um, rolling out mm. into to Northern Ireland. So um, we went out and we showed the, the Fleetwood uh, approach mm. um, as it ran in the USA and we asked GPs, pharmacists, people working in care homes, nurses, etc. How could we adapt this to fit in with your context? So we went through that adaptation phase. So I think that type of work <clears throat> where you're dealing with something that's very contextual, I think sure, that's yeah. where some of the differences lie. But I think if you're dealing with frailty in Canada, frailty in South Africa or frailty in New Zealand, it's probably not that different. But how you might manage it in terms of a service yeah. might differ because what's available in Australia may not be available in South Africa. Yeah, some of some of the projects we've been running more recently have really focused on um, sort of implementing the, the implementation of, of pharmacists within general practice settings. And that's obviously something that yeah. um, has emerged over the last number of years within the UK. And there's obviously there was a very specific pilot here within Northern Ireland. And what always has really interested me is that, a bit like how Carmel has described, yes, you have different, um, I suppose, structures of healthcare systems across the world but actually when you look across the the literature and mm. some of the the evidence that we've generated and equally from other countries which are a little bit ahead of us like um australia and canada a lot of those challenges that people are reporting are are universal yeah. and are really similar and we can learn from that and we were at a conference last week and and equally other countries who are behind us i think can learn a lot from from some of the evidence we're generating just in terms of you know, maybe how roles haven't been fully defined and the, the challenges that people have found trying to truly embed into those roles. So it's interesting that despite those huge differences yeah. in, in structure, fundamentally some of those issues are, are similar no matter where you are in the world. Look, uh, this has been, uh, yeah, incredibly informative, really interesting to kind of hear about the work that you do and, and how you do it. And, you know, I think we've kind of finished up quite nicely in terms of there is that global reach in terms of, of what it has in terms of impact on patients and, and carers and professionals across the globe. So I just want to take this opportunity to say thanks very much to the both of you for, for coming along and, and for speaking with me on the podcast today. Um, we thanks will, for inviting us. No problem at all. <laughs> it's great to talk about these things. And, it, you know, it's, it's, I think a lot of people will be interested in the work that you do. And I think it helps to contextualise that if there are invited to do so, surveys or questionnaires as well it's mm, maybe mm -hmm. good to understand what this all means and how it comes to be and what's going on behind the scenes i guess for for want of a better expression so um we will provide some additional resources and we'll link out to, to both carmel and, and heather's work uh, with the podcast so i would encourage listeners to have a look at that and, and to learn a little bit more about the the work that the carmel and heather are doing and the impact of that um that just really leads me to say thank you very much to professor carmel hughes and to dr heather barry for their time today and for, for having a chat with me on the podcast um, we look forward to, to welcoming you back to the, the next episode of Pharmacast very soon and we'll see you then. Thanks very much for now.